Well, do take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 3. In the Batman movies, always one to introduce culture on a Sunday morning. In the Batman movies, Gotham, the city in which he lives, is descending into anarchy and chaos. Gangs rule the streets, intimidate the inhabitants, fleece the poor, control the economy, and enjoy the good life while the city's infrastructure crumbles. The poor get poorer, the quality of life deteriorates. Meanwhile, the terrified citizenry try to resolve the problem by appointing new leaders. Quality leaders never seem to stand up, never seem to present themselves. Those who are appointed end up being weak and ineffectual, scarcely up to the task. Now, there's nothing more frightening than belonging to a society that's on the skids, that's falling apart at the seams, that is in long-term decline. And often in such circumstances, one of the features of a society in decline is that the leadership begins to demonstrate that weak people try to grapple with the problems that are beyond their ability or their wisdom to solve. Meanwhile, those who are, who are best placed to lead are avoiding the positions of leadership. They opt out to make their money, secure their pension, enjoy their retirement, while they leave the society to go to the dogs. Well, in many ways, that's a picture that we have painted in chapters 2 and 3 of Isaiah. It's a society, Judah and Jerusalem, that has gone to seed and is reaping what it sowed. It's a society under judgment. And you can be sure that what God says about Judah and Jerusalem, he would say about any society that behaved and acted the way that Judah and Jerusalem did. But he's not talking about any society. He is talking specifically of a particular city, Jerusalem, a particular people, Judah. And he is speaking about the covenant community. That is, those people to whom God had a binding relationship and with whom that relationship had been fixed by God's decree, by laws that had been established between them, by promises that God had made and by resolutions that the people had made, that they would keep his word. And God's promise that if they kept his word, they could keep their land. But now they're all up for grabs. The promises are up in the air because the people have turned away from God. Now that's the background. When we read the story of Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, and we think, how does this apply to us today? It does not apply directly to America, but it does apply to America's church and the world's church, which is a holy nation under God, established like Israel was, to declare God's glories to a watching world. And what is the fundamental problem? Well, we looked, we began our reading today in verse 22 of chapter 2. It's quite crucial, because that verse lies at the heart of this section, chapters 2 and 3 and describes what it is fundamentally that is the, the human problem, the problem among the people of God. And it's put like this, stop 
esteeming man, or stop regarding man, or stop putting your trust in man, in humanity, in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he in the end? Of what account is he? God is saying to his people, you're disregarding me, you're not trusting me, you're not highly esteeming me, but you have substitutes for me. There are those personalities, celebrities, characters, individuals, in whom you are putting, placing your trust, thinking that they have the wisdom, they have the power, they have the influence, they have the ability to get you out of this hole in which you find yourself. And God says to the people of God, don't put your trust anywhere else other than in me. That's his exhortation right at the heart of this section of the promise of the prophet Isaiah. And of course, what he is warning them about is any effort on the part of God's people, not only to trust in human leaders, but to trust in human wisdom or to trust in human reason or human opinion. Rather, they are to put their trust in God. Nor are they to seek the praise of other people, becoming the praise of other people becoming greater to us than the praise of God. What does he say? He says, in the end, wherever you put your trust outside of God, wherever it goes, to whomever it goes, no matter how great they are, no matter how gifted they are, no matter how impressive they are, no matter how talented they are, no matter how powerful they appear to be, in the end, if you put your trust anywhere other than in God, you will be massively disappointed. Massively disappointed. Because they're only clay. Their breath comes from God and can be taken from them by God. Of what account are they ultimately? Ultimately. Impressive to us now, but of no account ultimately. And so the opening words of verse, chapter 3, verse 1, bring us back into focus from looking at people, whoever they are within the church, this is, by the way, not the world at large, but within the, the family of God, the church of God, looking at people, God puts himself up front and center. It is not the sovereign self that we have to reckon with. It is not sovereign humanity that holds our fate. It is not the sovereign leader that we must worry about. Rather, it is the Lord God of hosts. Literally, that means the sovereign Yahweh of hosts. He's the one who's against us. It's been described earlier in chapter 2 as a warrior. This is the warrior God who is the king, the sovereign. Here is the warrior God who you know personally as Yahweh, your covenant, your covenant liege Lord, your covenant master to whom you have obligations and with whom you have a relationship. Here is the sovereign Yahweh of hosts, the God of armies. The God who is able to draw immediately up all the power he needs to do whatever he wants to do in the world. That's who the church is up against. This is Isaiah's word. To the church of his day and to the church of our day. 
And what is he saying about this God who is the warrior? He's saying that God has a day. Back in chapter 2, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. In chapter 3, verse 1, for behold, the Lord of hosts is taking away stuff. Verse 11, verse 17, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's chapter 2. That's what the people needed to see. They needed God to be big in their minds. They needed their understanding of God and their respect for God and their honoring of God and their esteem of God to be bigger than their esteem of any other human being, no matter who they were, no matter how gifted they were, how powerful they were. They needed God at the very heart of their thinking. What does this chapter say? It says that God who is one day going to bring about a final judgment, which is what chapter 2 was talking about from verse 6 and following. This God is still in the business of judging the world, even now. No, not judging the world now, judging the church now, judging the people of God now, starting with Israel. The northern tribes, the ten tribes that would disappear in Isaiah's lifetime. Jerusalem that would fall to Babylon a hundred years later on. The exile of the population for over 70 years in Babylon. Ultimately, the fall of Jerusalem under Titus in A.D. 70. 800 years after Isaiah. The destruction and obliteration of the temple, which has never been rebuilt to this day. But beyond even Israel, to the church of God, Jesus says to his people, I will prune the branches that you bring forth the fruit of repentance. He warns his church that he disciplines and he purifies his church in order to bring it back to himself, in order to make his church a light to the nations and a magnet to the peoples and bring them back to God. Now that's the great context then of this passage. God appears as a warrior in verse 1, and he appears in verse 13 as a judge. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with and describes what God is about. And this idea of God being a judge, of course, is alien to people's perception of what the Christian message is about today. Uh, and yet we have to say that this judgment of God is not only the final judgment that's coming at the end of history, but presently is the way in which God is dealing with his people. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Judgment begins in the house of God. You see, this passage we read today in the end of chapter 2, which goes with it, is actually bracketed together in Isaiah with two remarkable prophecies about the future. These two remarkable prophecies about the future are very positive and wonderful. They're glorious prophecies. At the beginning of chapter 2, it starts, that shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains 
In verse 3, many people shall come and say, let's go to the mountain of the house of the Lord that he may teach us his ways. What a great vision that is for the future. In chapter 4, verse 2, there'll be a day when the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And it's a glorious picture of the future. But between these two pictures of the glorious future, there is this immediate present. The Lord of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah. Why is he doing that? Well, here let me take you a moment to explain the difference between the Old Testament, as we call it, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the New Testament. In the New Testament... Whenever Jesus talks about judgment, he is talking about the end of history and the judgment of the world after which there is absolutely no hope of change, no prospect of salvation, only utter condemnation. Jesus is the one who invariably speaks about hell and the fires of hell and the torments of hell. If you want to know who talks about that in Scripture, Jesus does it more than anybody else. But when you read about judgment in the Old Testament, it is almost invariably the judgment of God's people with a view to the salvation of the world. You can see that here in Isaiah in these four chapters, two to four. Salvation encompasses these sections. The judgment that's going to fall on Judah and Jerusalem is so that ultimately this great vision of the future, when peoples pour into the house of God, come looking for God and longing for God and finding God, that that will actually happen. And in the process, God judges the church. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? And what Isaiah describes here in these verses is that God judges the church by taking away everything that it trusts in as a substitute for trusting in God. Look at that. You can see it in the opening verse. The Lord of hosts is taking away. And in verse 18, in that day the Lord will take away. What does he take away? Everything that we are trusting in. Look at verse 1 again. The Lord of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. In the Hebrew, there's only one word used there. It's used twice. Once in the masculine, once in the feminine. Translated support and supply in our English translations. And what it does is, in that repetition of the masculine and the feminine, is encompasses everything. Totality. It exhausts the category. Everything. Everything that you're trusting in. Everything that you're depending on. Everything you're looking to for support and supply. All of that. Everything you can imagine. Everything is comprehended. And God is going to take it all away. He's going to pull all of those supports away. Immediately, he was going to do it through the Assyrians to the, the people of Judah and Jerusalem and, 
uh, northern Israel. He was going to send in the Assyrians, and the Assyrians would, uh, would be, lay siege to their cities and their towns, and there would be famine and death and the removal of leaders by death or deportation and a breakdown of social order that would happen. It would happen to Jerusalem that way. God says to them, whatever you think about when you think about what you trust in, I'm going to pull it away. Whether you think of bread and water, verse 1, or whether you think of these mighty men and soldiers and judges and prophets and diviners and elders and captains of 50 and men of rank and counselors and magicians and experts, I'm going to remove everything you've ever put your trust in. Both the legitimate things and the illegitimate things. The godly things and the ungodly things. I'm going to pull them all out from under you. That's part of the judgment that God promises. It's very interesting that, that he should begin with this idea of what are the basic necessities of life, bread and water. And then go on to talk about the leaders of a society because what, what Isaiah is saying is this. Good leadership is as vital to a community, whether that is the society outside of the church here, good leadership is as vital as bread and water, those basic necessities of life. Absolutely vital. If I can illustrate it from the society outside, back in the 1930s when all Europe was falling like ninepins before the Nazi tyranny, and Britain was isolated within Europe, the leaders of Britain were wanting to roll over backward, or over onto their backs and make peace with the dictator. Everybody in Parliament was wanting to do that. There was a great move, an amazing, the most amazing loss of nerve before a mighty enemy in history. Only one man, one man, who was pilloried by his colleagues, who was lambasted in the media, one man spoke out again and again and again and again, making speech after speech after speech, being disregarded over and over again, everything he said being uh, used as uh, a joke, as, a, uh, as a, something to play with rather than take seriously. That man, of course, was Winston Churchill. But supposing there had been no Winston Churchill, Supposing in the end there had been no one to go into the gap, then you would have had a society there as we have described here in chapter 3. There was a massive failure of leadership. And so we find, for example, this, ver this word in verse 12 or, or verse 4, it, they will I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them, says the Lord. Later on, he says, Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The very people who should know what to do, the people who should be guiding them and leading them, are taking them off course. There's no one to step into leadership. Leadership in God's church is a gift of God. And there are clearly delineated requirements for godly leadership in the Scriptures. And when we choose to flout those requirements, when we choose to cut corners, when we appoint whom we please, to, we run the risk of getting the leaders we want and losing the plot into the bargain. Look at the list. God's going to take away all the mighty men and the soldiers, the warriors in whom they trusted. They believed, you see. They had it in their heads. We're not going to trust that God will turn up on a day that we're attacked 
what we'll do is we'll make sure our army is big enough to deal with it if God doesn't arrive. We'll make sure we've got the technology to deal with it if God doesn't turn up on that day. Instead of trusting in God, they trusted in their army. Instead of trusting in God's wisdom, they trust the people they could consult, their prophets and their diviners and their elders and so on. They would, they would listen to these people, but they would not listen to God. And so God strips them away. He takes the military away, the civil authorities away, the politicians, the judiciary, all of those who are in leadership away. He even takes the prophet away. Because when God starts to judge his church, one of the casualties is the word of God. Amos, you remember, says to the people, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, north to south, east to west, run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord. And they shall not find it. They shall not find it. God takes away the prophet. He takes away the substitute for the prophet, the illegitimate leader, the, the diviner, the soothsayer, the spiritual guide, as it were, who was the replacement for the prophet when God's word isn't coming through the prophet or they don't like what the prophet is saying. As God said to Ezekiel, my people, my people like to listen to you. They love to listen to the sound of your voice. To you, you're like a beautiful bird song singing in the trees. They love they love the sound of what you're saying, but they don't do what you say. When the people of God stop listening to the Word of God in a believing and obedient sense, well, God sends other kinds of speakers, other kinds of teachers. And so you have the leadership of the unworthy. Do you see this? Verse 4, I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. The inexperienced leader is a sign of judgment on the church. Ruled by the inexperienced leads to disaster for the church. They may think they're great people. They may make much noise. They may go in for great dis display. But they're children. This is what happens to nations when leadership falls so low it's held in contempt by the people. Nobody takes them seriously anymore. They haven't any gravitas anymore. I well remember one general election in Britain when we had one of, I think, our youngest prime minister ever. And as he came out to make his acceptance speech, there were, it was a great spectacle. They had the, the music blaring. Things can only get better, you know. It was roaring out. Things can only get better. It wasn't going to get better. It was going to get worse and worse and worse. The first, the first thing they did as prime minister, go on all the, the rock and roll shows and the pop quizzes and all the rest of it. No gravitas, no seriousness. Why should we take him seriously anymore? If that happens in the world, you can be sure it happens in the church. And it leads to a form of anarchy where everyone eats and devours one another, verse 5. The people who oppress one another, everyone is fellow, everyone is neighbor. The youth insolent to the elder and despised to the honorable. They were flouting the word of God that said you should stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. But they weren't doing that. There was anarchy. 
lawlessness. There was no one to restrain lawlessness. There was no authority or respect anymore. Now, isn't it interesting? Isaiah says that one of the ways God judges his church is he gives the church inexperienced leaders. I, I mean, this is how it works. I know, of a, I know of a denomination. They have a general assembly every year. And uh, a number of years ago now, they started having, coinciding with the general assembly where the ministers gathered, a weekend before the general assembly for their young people. And then they introduced a weekend for the children of the church. And what happened at these two youth and children's weekends were, was this. They, they canvassed these children and young people for their ideas about what the church should be doing in order to be more relevant to their generation and to uh, their understanding of the world. And then at the General Assembly, they had this slot where they brought the recommendations of the children, the young people, voted them in, and that set the agenda for the coming year. Is that leadership? Today, that denomination is so far away from anything that you would call even righteous, far less godly, with masses of ministers leaving it and churches leaving it. But you think of popular evangelicalism. Where does the driving force of leadership come from today? I think of many ordained ministers who have abdicated their responsibility, ordained in Scripture, to lead the people of God in the worship of God. And they've delegated the conduct of public worship and the leading of worship to others. They've handed it over because we live in a culture, we live in a culture that is dominated by music, and we all enjoy music, but it's dominated by music, and so therefore the culture of the church should be dominated by music. Or we live in a culture that is driven by the cult of youth. And so in many churches, what happens is you go in and worship is being led by teenagers who are more or less competent, some of them very competent, but that's not the issue, is it? What's happening is those who are supposed to lead aren't leading anymore. They've abdicated their responsibility. And what happens long-term is you change the nature of the church. The church is no longer living in accordance with the Word of God, but is bowing to the cult of the culture, the leadership of the unworthy. Oh, there's the leadership of the unwilling in verse 6. A man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have a cloak, you shall be our leader. Uh, they come to this, these you know, the people who should be leading are no longer leading because there's no respect for leadership anymore. So they're keeping their heads down, getting on with their life. Or they've been removed somehow from the church. And so the church is desperate for somebody to take these positions. They, they need elders. They need people uh, to become ministers. And so they look around and anybody who, who looks reasonably respectable, who has a cloak, who has clothes that suit the kind of Image, well, we'll go to them and we'll make them an elder. It no, doesn't matter whether they don't quite have all the qualifications or the leadership, moral and spiritual character to do it. We'll just pull them on board. We need everybody we can get. And the person who's being dragged in 
in verse 7 says, I'm not, I, can't, I can't solve this problem. I can't heal the people. I, 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 you know, I'm as, I'm as empty as you are. I'm as needy as you are. I'm not in a position to be a leader. The picture that's painted here is of a church driven by weak leadership. It gets worse, of course. Verse 8 is the key turning, turnaround verse because it, it describes the core problem of this people in those days. Jerusalem has stumbled like a drunk in a fog, stumbling their way through the streets. It comes kind of naturally to a Glaswegian to go stumbling through the street. This is the way the church looks. No dignity, no, nothing that makes it look like it comes from God stumbling its way, falling down. That's the picture that he paints. Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord. Here's the core issue. They're against Yahweh. They're against the Lord. They defy His glorious presence. They've decided that they will look elsewhere rather than to the eyes of God. They've decided that they are more concerned with the eyes of others, the other nations round about, than they are for the eyes of God who are looking down at them. And as he goes on to describe bad leadership, you notice that this picture that he paints here. He paints a picture of the leading men using their positions to their own ends. The Lord has taken his place to contend and stand and judge against the peoples. It's you who have devoured the vineyard. The vineyard is the people of God, Israel. You've devoured the the vineyard. You've spoiled the poor in your houses. You've crushed my people, grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. In Isaiah, the poor and the afflicted are the believing remnant within Israel. They're the godly people in the nation. And what these people, these new leaders, these bad leaders are doing, these people in in influence are doing, is they are devouring and crushing my people. God uses that expression twice in verse 12. In verse 15, it refers to His people. God's people. This is the biblical image of the community of God's people. And these leaders are devouring it, crushing it. My people. Those who believe in me have been marginalized pushed to the edges of the church, and everybody else, in a sense, is, is setting the tone and the pace of the direction the church is going. You see, all this is in the context of a courtroom scene in verse 13 and 14. God is judging His people, and He's bringing the evidence to bear against them. Jesus echoes this language. He talks about false leaders, and He says, false leaders are like the thief that comes only to steal and kill and destroy. They're out for what they can get. They're out to make a name for themselves. Or they're out to make money for themselves. Or or they're out just to have influence and to throw their weight around. I know what it's like in some churches, you know, where little men who can't make it in the world use their position of influence in the church to throw their weight around and bully other people. And that's what these people were doing. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, destroy, but I am come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, that is the good leader, 
The good leader lays down his life for the sheep. And the leading women are no better than the leading men. Isaiah gives this great big description, which Carl drew our attention to. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks. You have no idea, by the way. Let me just give you a little transcultural comment here. You have no idea how difficult it would be to read this in England. Because if I said the word haughty in England, they would think I was expressing the word H-O-T-T-Y, which is used... So I'm told anyway, it's used of certain women. So, I mean, it would, it would fit the context. I'm not doing that, and you're too spiritual even to recognize that, but I'm just telling you now, don't use that if you're ever in England because they'll misunderstand what you're saying. So when it says the daughters of Zion are haughty, they're not saying what they're saying in England, okay? They're saying what it says in this spelling, that they are arrogant. They're arrogant, they're full of pride, like the men folk that he's just described. They are, they're involved in bleeding the people as well. They're involved in marginalizing the godly as well. They're as much into it as their men were. And this whole list of the, armlet, the armlets and the headdresses and so on, many of these things were were associated with the worship of the, the foreign gods, the gods of the nations round about. God doesn't really mind if you're here with a handbag or, or, or a mantle or a festal robe or whatever it is. You're, there's not many turbans or veils, but, but, but he's not really bothered about that. And if you've got perfume on, thank you. And <clears throat> but as E.J. Young, who was professor of Old Testament at Westminster, said, the problem is not one of dress, it's one of the heart. It's the heart that God is addressing here. It's what, what was in their heart, this pride, this arrogance, this sense of we are okay, we are in the right, we are, we're doing the right thing, and we have nobody else to answer to, as long as, as long as everything is going as well as it is going, it's fine. God says to them, I'm going to strip you down. Instead of perfume, there'll be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. Instead of beauty, a scar, branding. And as for your arrogant demeanor, because you're connected to these well-heeled, influential men... Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And you'll be left mourning and empty. In fact, you'll have no identity left. So much so that seven men will take hold of one man and say, would you not just give us your name so that we have recognition? We can use our own credit card. We don't need your money, but we need your name to give us status in the community. Total loss. Total loss. Why, why is this in the Bible? Well, it's in the Bible to teach us that Jesus still judges the church. 
in this age, before he judges the world at the end of history. That great vision that he paints in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, of a great, bright, wonderful, beautiful future is real. But the, one of the ways in which he gets us ready for that is that he roughs up his church. Don't believe me? Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus is speaking to a church. For you say, 317, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. White garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent, God says. When the church finds itself under the mighty hand of God, it needs to remember that God's purpose is to advance His church in the world by intermittent judgments on his own people. You know, there's this obsession in some quarters with revival. God rarely sends revival to his church, but he often sends judgment to his church to purify it, to cleanse it, to sharpen up our act, to make us consider our ways to make us take Him seriously, to take our attention away from those things that are a big distraction to us. You think about it for a moment. To what degree are we regarding or esteeming man? Would you threaten the unity of the church because of your allegiance to one individual? Would you bury sin rather than deal with it in order to protect one man's reputation? Would you admire, do you so admire and adulate a leader or gifted individual here or elsewhere that you're so blind to their weaknesses? Is there any individual you deem to be indispensable to the church of Jesus Christ today? Insofar as your answer is positive to any of those, you have made a God of that person. And you have substituted that person for God. And you're placing your confidence in that person and giving your affections to that person rather than to God. God is saying, you put your confidence in people. I'll just take them out of your life. Trust me. Trust me alone. Esteem me. Esteem me alone, says the Lord. It's a relevant word to the church, isn't it? Jerusalem fell. A hundred years after Isaiah, eight hundred years after Isaiah. And wherever the church has risen in its arrogance, 
to take confidence in its own gifts or its programs or its money or its numbers or its influence. God is a habit, not of sending revival, but of sending rebuke. And the proper response to rebuke, isn't it, as his people, is to accept it. Today, in this place, you and I want to do that. That's why we're here. We're here to hear the word of God so that we can hear his voice and we can pray for the church, pray for ourselves, pray for the people of God, pray for America and America's church, that God would be gracious to us and hold back judgment for the sake of the world that needs to hear and the peoples that need to come and those of his elect who need to be saved. May God do so and more. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this morning we might have a due sense of uh, your godness, your greatness, your gloriousness, and bow before you. Uh, forgive us, Lord, if we have trusted too much in people and not enough in you. And I pray, pray too that as we leave here, that especially for those of us who feel this debt very deeply and are in danger of being overwhelmed by it, please bring to mind those two great passages that come before and after this section that remind us of the glorious day when at the end of history many will come from east and west and north and south, and sit down with us in the kingdom of God. Help us to keep that focus in view, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.